it's not so much necessarily thinking about a specific company that you want to go to, but what are you good at doing and what do you like doing from a functional point of view and finding those opportunities because that's where you will be happy and that's where you will excel. Welcome to the SIDCast, the podcast where we sit down with a fascinating guest each week to hear their story, who they are, and how they got to be that way. My name is Sid Finkelstein, a professor at Dartmouth College, and your host and guide as we embark on a journey of learning, discovery, and good old-fashioned conversation. January continues with the second of four high-powered, ultra-successful women in business, and this time, the SIDCast welcomes my friend, Christine Spadafore. Christine has really had one of the most varied careers of anyone I know. A big part of this episode is going to be talking about that journey from her early days growing up in a family where she was just one generation removed from coming to America as an immigrant and accomplished an incredible thing, as we're going to hear in the story today. We're going to talk about each stage of her journey, really. Christine likes to talk about her career and her jobs and activities and nonprofit activities as a portfolio. And it's a term that I think is particularly apropos for her and many others, in fact. I like to talk about how people craft their careers. In other words, they make it their own. It's organic. They adjust. They make changes. They pivot. All of which really are parts of managing a career and really part of a life. But hardly ever is this talked about by career counselors, by most talent executives, and by other so-called experts. There just seems to be this assumption that many people have that we live a linear life. And boy, I don't like that idea at all. I mean, that word linear is the word that I want to take it on because think about the assumption behind that. And this is really what I don't like because the assumption is, and I think it's an assumption that will hurt people by creating uncertainty and confusion, fear, and really unnecessary worrying. I hear glimpses of this problem so often when I counsel or mentor younger people, whether they're some of my own students or people that are well into their own careers. It's this belief that if you're not going from job one to job two to job three, showing this clear progression in a career track that you could explain to a recruiter or put onto your resume, people start to get nervous about it. But what a mistake. You know, for some people, it's perfectly fine. I'm okay with that. It's never a one-size-fits-all. But now that I've done over 80 podcast episodes of the SIDCast with some really, really successful, really interesting people in many walks of life, I don't know whether I've ever heard the story of this type of linear progression of a career from any one of them. Everyone zigzags. Everyone pivots. Everyone figures things out as they're going along. I mean, think about it. When you're in your early 20s, can you actually come up with a game plan for your whole life? And then could you actually execute on that game plan for the next 30 years of your entire career? I mean, think about the odds of making that happen. How could you possibly know what the world's going to be like? How could you possibly know what you like and what you'll want to do? and what you might want to end up doing? How do you know what will happen to you personally in your own life with partners, with children, with parents, with COVID as we're seeing now? Predicting the unpredictable is a losing proposition. And it's a double losing proposition because not only will you be wrong, but you'll set yourself up to lose opportunities to adjust, to adapt, to live. And you just add worry upon worry. This idea of a linear career, I think, is just fatally flawed. And this is 
maybe one of the reasons why Christine and I bonded, because she doesn't think that way. She thinks about it as a tapestry, as a crafting career, or as a portfolio, which is, the, again, the word she likes to use, and I think it's a good one. I mean, I shared a little bit about myself in various episodes of the SIDCAST, but here again, you know, I'm a pretty good case in point. I've been a professor at Dartmouth College for 27 years, but my entire career has really been about zigzags and about adjustments and about learning. I mean, if learning is what you care about, which is what it is for me, you've got to go where the learning is. Whatever you care about, you've got to go where that is. And it's not always via step-by-step progression. Not to mention that before I became an academic, I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I thought, well, maybe I'll be an accountant because my older brother, Simon, was an accountant and he seemed to like it. But I quickly found out that accounting wasn't for me or to be more precise, I wasn't for accounting. And I pivoted and I decided to go back to school, the London School of Economics, And here again, not because going to LSE was the place to go to get some high-powered job was the next step on a career progression. I went to LSE because that's the place where I thought I would grow and learn the most. And by the way, that's also a place where I thought I'd have lots of fun in the process. And that's what drove me. All this is not to say that Christine Spadafore has not been very thoughtful in her own career. Of course, she has. And in our conversation, you'll hear that we'll both draw out connections and themes But I'm sure what will strike you and most listeners is that she was always hungry for learning, always wanted to get better, whether that meant continuing down the same career path or not. She made that choice and created a life of impact as a result, not to mention a great deal of professional success as well. Christine Spatifer's bio is lengthy, and I've included it in the show notes, and it's definitely worth a read. But let me highlight for you a couple of things. Christine's been a partner in three major global management consulting firms, including Boston Consulting Group. She has a law degree from Harvard Law School. She's on boards of directors, nonprofit boards. She's been a CEO as well. She's an active lecturer. She's a coach, a mentor, and advisor. She's been a visitor to my class that I teach at the Tuck School called Strategic Leadership. And in addition to doing a great job in the classroom, each year she seems to connect with new students and they become mentees of hers for years to come. It's kind of like what I said before, you know, a life of impact, a career of impact. So let's pull up a chair and listen and learn as I talk to Christine Spadafore. Welcome to the SIDCast. It's Sid Finkelstein. And my guest today is my friend, Christine Spadafore. Hi, Christine. Hi, Sid. It is so lovely to be with you. Thank you. Well, it's great that you're able to join us. We're starting a brand new year. We know this year is going to be better than last year. It can't possibly be worse. That's what we know. And as I said earlier, you've been in my class as a guest lecturer and a speaker, and you've done all these different things. But this is a situation where I think people want to say, well, who is this woman? Where'd she come from? How'd she grow up? At least that's what I'm curious about to start. And that's where I want to start the conversation. So could you share a little bit about you know, your family uh, growing up and what it was like to be a kid in your family? I was really fortunate to be born to two exceptional people. My parents were kind and generous and hard workers. Their parents came from Europe, so I'm only a second-generation American, and I really stand on the shoulders of so many strong women that came before me. When did they come over, then, your grandparents? In the early 1900s. From what country? From Italy. From Italy. And so when they were there, they worked in the olive orchards under the unforgiving southern Italian sun. Others uh, worked deep in coal mines. And they came wanting a better life for their children. That was part of a massive wave of immigrants, I think, 1880 to 1920 from Europe, especially from Europe, people moving, of course, for a better life. And I always thought and continue to think that people give up everything, 
even if it's not a lot, it's still their life, it's their legacy, to go somewhere else. These are exceptional people. There's something different about those people, you know? And it's true today in the debate about immigration and, and immigrants, and, you know, America is a country of immigrants. But you and I, for that matter, my, in my case, is my parents that came over from Europe. And yeah, not everybody does that. So what did they do, your grandparents, when they came here? On my mother's side, uh, they had five children. My mother was the oldest of five. And my grandfather initially, when he came, and they came separately. My grandmother came as a child with her mother, and my grandfather came when he was a teenager. My grandfather worked in the Allegheny National Forest in the lumber yards initially. They literally lived in the woods. My mother was born in the woods. They moved to then the big city that had 6,000 people. And there my grandfather was a supervisor in a big forge plant. And my mother's side of the family was very fortunate because my grandfather always had a job during the Depression. My father's family, however, basically lost everything in the Depression. Yeah. Were they educated, your grandparents? Did they have a chance to go to school either back in Europe or here? Neither of my grandparents on my mother's side finished school. My grandmother, I think, had a sixth grade education, and my grandfather did not finish high school. And the same on my father's side with his dad. So they were, for all practical purposes, functionally illiterate, certainly strong engagement in the community. But when my grandfather, I remember one story, he was such a hard worker in the forge, he was promoted to supervisor. And then he was up for another promotion, but he was unable to take the promotion because he was not proficient enough in English writing. Wow. You know, it also reminds me, my parents uh, didn't go to school back in Europe, didn't have a chance for all sorts of reasons. But my mother went back to school to learn English. It wasn't her first language, right? To learn English when I think I was a kid and uh, my father was always working and so he didn't. And to the last of his days, he would have this kind of language of a combination of four or five languages that were mixed up that I kind of understood. Of course you do. So when people say, well, what's your mother tongue? Well, some amalgamum of five languages. <laughs> what it was. Uh, so your parents, were they professionals as well then as you have become? My mother worked before my brother and I were born. I have one brother. He's older than I am. And so my mother worked in at General Electric, basically as a bookkeeper accountant type before my brother was born. Once my brother was born, uh, she and my father decided that she would be a stay-at-home mom. My father was a World War II vet. He was one of the youngest machinist mates in the Coast Guard. And at 19 years old, he was running the engine room for one of the big ships that was on assignment in the South Pacific. And he had a real engineer's mind. And so when he was in the service, he really started becoming interested in electrical engineering type things. After the war, when he and my mother were married, he first worked the night shift in a power plant and over the years was then uh, promoted to management at the Electric Public Utility in Pennsylvania, which is where I grew up. I grew up in Erie, Pennsylvania. So you're really highly educated. Where did that come from? Did they emphasize education? Are you just kind of the black sheep of the family that <laughs> decided to keep going to school or what? Well, again, much of that goes back to my parents who always encouraged me to think big. And while neither of them graduated from college, they had that ethos to really want more for my brother and me than they had been able to have from an educational point of view. My brother went to college. He went to graduate school. 
I remember when I was finishing high school and starting to think about what I wanted to do next, having a conversation with my parents that it felt as though my head was filled with empty bookshelves and I needed to leave my hometown to go fill them up. And my parents encouraged that. When I was in high school, wonderful opportunities came up to do a short-term exchange to the Dominican Republic, and my parents encouraged that, and so I did that. When I was a senior, there was a program, again, for another short-term exchange to Moscow, and so I did that. And so all along, my parents were encouraging me, again, having opportunities that were never presented to them. Right. And you've described your father in particular as very empowering for you. Are there any examples, anecdotes you could share about that? Yes, there are two. One is when I was five years old, I remember being in the car with my dad. We were probably running errands somewhere. And I was talking about, I don't know, what I wanted to be when I grow up. And he said to me, now here's this strong, steady, smart World War II vet telling his five-year-old daughter, you can do and be anything you want. Now, this is in the 60s. So he was a feminist long before (laughs) his time. So I believed him. I believed that I could go do anything I wanted and be anything I wanted. And he and my mother both encouraged that curiosity and adventure. The second thing that I remember about my dad, I mean, I remember many things, and he was just a remarkable man in every conceivable way. When I was about nine, he was teaching me how to dance. So we had music on in the living room, and we're dancing, and he stops dead in his tracks. And he looks at me, and he says, little girl, if you keep trying to lead, the boys aren't going to want to dance with you. So what about a metaphor for everything <laughs> that came up professionally? He couldn't have been more right. That's, that's an interesting uh, <laughs> combination of advice, you know. Uh, yeah. Don't lead because the boys are not going to like that. But on the other hand, you can do anything and be anything. That's right. Uh, actually, not that long ago, I saw this movie. I don't know if you've seen it. I Am Woman about Helen Reddy's life. And, you know, the I Am Woman song was this kind of anthem for the feminist movement, certainly during the campaign for equal rights amendment, which amazingly failed, just short, I think, of two or three states from being ratified. And so she started to become well-known in the 60s. There's a scene where she's there in the room with her agent, who's her husband, and with a bunch of um, Columbia, I guess it's Columbia, music executives. And they're talking about her first album or something like that. I think the song was I Am Woman that she had recorded. She wanted that to be the title of the album. And they said, you know, you sound too angry. That's what they told me. You sound too angry. People don't want that. And then they start all these guys kind of laughing with each other and joking and being kind of the classic put down, discriminatory, you know, ugly man type of story. And she didn't take any of that at all. She figured out a way. And of course, she's become this, she's now passed away not that long ago also, but she's became this icon. But it does bring to life what you said about your dad telling you, you can be anything. Well, really, that was unusual. Women were not anything in those days. Many didn't even think about it. But the ones that did were pounded on continuously, even when they had this superstar talent as a Helen Reddy, Mm -hmm. actually, right? And I suspect that you have your own personal stories and examples of having to fight your way to get a chance to say what you want to say. And there's so many levels to your career from, you know, school, which I want to talk about next, to being a consultant, a professional, a board member, a CEO. And in each of those instances, I'm going to surmise that you had to deal with exactly this issue 
about standing up for what you thought was right, and even standing up for the right to say what you thought you wanted to say and engage in the debate as an equal. And I'm going to ask you about some of those examples. But let's start with school. So you went off to college, and did you know what you wanted to be then at that stage of the game? I actually did not go off to college. I went to nursing school. In those days, there was not a bachelor's, not that it was so long ago, but um, the Bachelor of Nursing programs were just starting. But if you wanted to be a nurse, you went to a hospital program. So even though it was really identified in sixth grade, even though I had an aptitude for science, and I really consider myself to be a STEM girl. Um, I was trained in science and medicine for many years. I knew I wanted to do something in medicine. So nursing was certainly one thing that I wanted to pursue. I thought about pharmacy because I'd been a pharmacy assistant for a number of years, but I really wanted more of the transactional bedside work. But being a pharmacy assistant gave me a great education as a high school part-time job to really understand the whole pharmaceutical side of medicine. So I started out going to a University of Pittsburgh hospital and got my RN degree and worked in the medical ICU, which is one of the most meaningful and greatest privileges I've had professionally. So I'm going to ask you, why did you choose not to go to medical school? That is such a good question. The medical school conversation never came up. Let me give you a little context for that. I'm going to go all the way back again. When I was finishing eighth grade, I went to a parochial school to eighth grade. And then the decision was, do I go to the girls prep school or do I go to public school? Now, again, my parents giving me tremendous opportunities. I would go swimming at the Y on Saturday. And again, this is now in the 60s. And it was an integrated pool from a racial point of view. So there's white kids and black kids, and we're all just swimming together. I was also a competitive ice skater as a kid. And when I would go ice skating, I had friends who, now again, as a parochial school, you're with a bunch of Catholic kids. I had friends at the skating rink who were not Catholic. I had friends at the skating rink who were Protestant. I had friends at the skating rink who were Jewish. And so when it came time to think about after eighth grade, do I go to a public school or another private prep school? I had a conversation with my parents and I said, when I grow up, I'm not just going to be with Catholic kids. I'm going to be with boys. I'm going to be with kids of other races. I'm going to be with kids of other religions. So I think I should go to the public school because it's time to start that integration. You said all that in eighth grade? Yes. That's quite a thing to say. I'm not sure. I'm not sure I used those exact words. But <laughs> I that understood. Was, that yeah, was the that, message. I mean, that's a lot of presence, you know, self-awareness. Unusual, I think, for a kid, really. Parents often guide their kids in that direction for maybe some of the same ideas or thoughts that you had. But anyway, go ahead. So you did that. Yeah, so I did that. So I went to a public school. And again, credit to my parents, even going all the way back, my kindergarten was integrated and my parents thought nothing of it. Again, this is in the 60s. It was just a way of life. These people were our neighbors. So I go to the public high school, really wanting to focus on science. And I had a guidance counselor. I will not name her. I had a guidance counselor. I wanted to take honors chemistry, physics, and calculus. And for honors chemistry, she said I could not take honors chemistry because it conflicted with gym class. My father went to the school to try to get that changed. They wouldn't do it. I wanted to take physics and calculus, and she said, you'll never need it. So she wouldn't put it on my class list. Now, while that was unavailable to me, I'll give you a contrast. This was in the days when there were still certain kinds of competitions. And so 
the America Junior Miss Pageant was coming up. And somehow the school got notified and they wanted a representative from the school to compete. And so I was selected. Now, when it came to being selected (laughs) to be in the regional America Junior Miss Pageant, they knew exactly where to find me. And if I needed to miss classes, that was fine. But when it came to get honors chemistry and physics and calculus, that was not an option. So the priorities, again, as much as my parents advocated for me, the academic priorities would not change by the school. And so without those classes, it would have been very hard to go in a more science direction. That's what you're saying. Without those, the whole medical school conversation never even happened. I'm sure had I been in those classes and taken Mm -hmm. those advanced courses, it would have opened up you know, more options in terms of even conversation about it. But medical school was never presented as an option. You know, I applied later, but not initially. No. Yeah, it's very interesting about the opportunities and the options and things that are considered. And I've said this before, that if you think about it in America, how many smart kids there are all over the place? They don't know that Harvard and Dartmouth even exist. Or if they do, it's like they know that uh, J-Lo is an actress. It's something out there. It doesn't mean anything to them. And I know that all of the Ivy League schools have been spending more and more time trying to find these high potential kids and giving them a chance to go to university. It's still tiny, tiny numbers. But to me, you know, as you know, I spend a lot of my own career and research thinking about talent, finding great talent, developing great talent. And I think about all of the underutilized capabilities that exist in, of course, every country, but let's talk about the U.S. because it's, the U.S. is such an advanced economy, but yet it's probably not advanced at all relative to other countries. It's a bit of an aside, but you're not exactly the same type of example, but, you know, you could see it from what you just said. Many of the examples I'm thinking of now that the Dartmouths and the Harvards and you know, the Yales are going after, these are kids that are very, very poor, and the parents don't know anything about any of that just because of how they were brought up you're a little different situation, but still the same result happened. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's quite interesting. I also know if I go back and think about people that grew up in an earlier generation, kind of my age or your age for that matter, you discover teachers, nurses, beautiful careers, extremely valuable careers. But today, if they grew up, doctors and principals and CEOs for that matter. And mm-hmm. you somehow eventually got there, which is really kind of interesting, but you see that. And it's also great when I hear these stories or hear about, you know, some friend or someone I met whose mom or even grandmother went to college in the 20s and the 30s and Mm -hmm. 40s, let alone 50s and 60s. And it's amazing. I mean, you know what I'm thinking of also, I'm sure you've seen the RBG movies um, and what she had to endure. And actually, I'm going to jump ahead a little bit because you are also at Harvard Law School. And so it's kind of interesting. (laughs) Uh, I think you were a couple of decades or more after Ruth Bader Ginsburg. But she was, I don't know if she was the only woman, I'm trying to remember, not very I many. I think she was one of nine. And she, she graduated Something. either first or close to first in yes. the whole school. Yes. Um, and couldn't get a job. Yes, because she's a woman, which I'm sure when I was being quote unquote counseled in high school is because I was a girl. Yeah, of course. Of course. Yeah, because yeah. the boys were going off to med school, but not the girls. From nursing and practicing as an RN, how long did you do that? I practiced in the ICU for about four years and then left to go get a bachelor's degree. So I was just really intellectually restless. Again, this empty bookshelf feeling, and I still feel it. So I'm still trying to learn so many things. But at the time, I thought perhaps going into something like hospital administration 
I love hospitals. I love hospital people. I don't want to be in a hospital. But there is something special about a hospital environment and the commitment that no matter what your job is there, if you're the brain surgeon all the way down to the person who delivers the meals, there is such a community and a caring and a camaraderie there. It's like their own little village. So I thought hospital administration. So I went back and got a bachelor's degree in administration and management. I got a business degree. And at what point did you end up going back to school again for law? Well, I made a stop in the middle, of course. (laughs) After the business degree, I worked in Washington for two agencies um, as a health scientist. Again, this common thread of science, which my sixth grade teacher spotted. And that was, you know, it was a very rewarding experience. I was basically the function in part was sort of like a chief of staff as well to some of the assistant administrators. And so I learned a lot about how health laws were made, health regulations were made. After a couple years there, I um, was given a full scholarship to Harvard School of Public Health and so left Washington to come to Boston to go to the School of Public Health. It was a two-year program, and it's a Master of Science in Physiology. So again, still very focused on the sciences. And it's when I was there that I was very serious about going to medical school. So I took the MCATs and did fine. I did well enough to be called for interviews at about 10 schools. So I will give you a story at just two of the schools. At one of the schools where I was interviewed, I was interviewed by all men and one woman. So at one of the interviews, the interviewer said to me, look, I know exactly who you are. You're just an ICU nurse that wants to better your social position by being a doctor. So many people like this out there. It's amazing. So that was one. And the second that I recall is, again, my MCATs were good enough to get me in. The second was a physician, a male who said, well, certainly you're qualified to be here, but you know it would really sweeten things if there was a $15,000 donation to my department's kitty. I'm a little flabbergasted at that one. I've never heard that. What did that mean exactly? Bribery to get in? Is that the right word? I never heard of a thing like that. Bribery, quid pro quo, you give me the money, I'll let you come in. But I was good enough to get in on my own. That's why I was there interviewing. And you'd be paying tuition anyway. Yes. Yes. And at the University of Pennsylvania, I was interviewed by a lovely woman who was the only one that really got me. And my hope was to have gone to Penn. That was my plan. So to your point, something happened in the middle. When I was in graduate school for the master's in physiology, it was at Harvard, but I did half of my master's in the science and technology program at MIT. Now, to your point earlier about you may not hear about some schools when you're in high school, Someone mentioned MIT to me in high school, and I had no idea what it was. (laughs) Here I am now at MIT. (laughs) And I had just an amazing mentor there. He and I published a law review article together. We wrote a book together that was published by Johns Hopkins in their scholarly science series. And he was a PhD chemist and also a lawyer. I asked him for a letter of recommendation to medical school, and he said no. I was shocked and confused. So I asked him why. And he said, I know your work from the agencies. I know that you want to have the broadest influence you can from a science point of view, from a medical point of view. If you go to medical school, it'll really be more of a one-on-one conversation with patients 
The insurance companies will make you see five patients an hour, and I know that is not the kind of medicine you want to practice. So I think you should go to law school. That sounds like a very wise man. That's a very wise man. So, of course, being a graduate student, I said, well, I've basically spent pretty much everything on applying to medical school. So he took out his wallet, emptied all of the cash on his desk, (laughs) pushed it across the desk to me and said, you apply to Harvard Law School. If you don't get in, you're not out anything. If you do get in, it's the best money you ever spent in your life. So I took the money and stuffed it in my jeans. (laughs) put on my backpack and went back to my apartment and got the Harvard Law School application and was admitted. He was absolutely right. Isn't it great when there are these mentors that are wise, right? Yes, he saw things in me that I didn't see in me. And I'm forever grateful to him for that. That's one of the ways I describe super bosses, in fact. They see the Mm -hmm. potential in other people before they even see it themselves. And not only that, but they will help them in the way that this person did, help them get there. Of course, you do the work. Nobody does it for you, but they open the doors or they open your eyes. It's fortunate to come across people like that in a career. So I'm seeing the picture. We're seeing the picture of all these kind of building blocks, each one interesting and tremendous experience in healthcare and medicine in so many ways. Unusual, really, how many different ways. And there are more ways to come, of course. But tell us about Harvard Law School. How many women versus men, more or less, do you remember? We are a class of about 500 in total. And in my year, there were about 20% women. So really different already. What decade are we in now? We're in the late 80s. Late 80s. Okay. So Chief Justice uh, Elena Kagan was the dean at the law school, but that was after your time. After me, yes. Yeah. So the stories that I referenced earlier about Ruth Bader Ginsburg and the discrimination she felt, you didn't have any problem like that, right? Not really. I didn't feel discriminated against uh, based on my gender, although one of my classmates did tell me at one point that I was taking the place of a man. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a common meme that you hear. Yeah, Um, but I didn't feel it from my professors or from my other classmates. And there was just a handful of us that were considered second career students, but mostly everyone came straight from college. So you were in a different kind of category because you may have been at that point maybe a decade older than everyone else. Yeah, not quite, but certainly, yes, but certainly older with very different experience versus coming straight from college. I'd done the nursing. I'd been in the government as a health scientist. So I was coming with a different background. All right. What did you do after you graduated? Uh, after I graduated, I went to live in Italy for six months. <laughs> we, we had just shipped the book off to the professor from MIT, and I had just shipped the book off to Johns Hopkins. Mm-hmm. The final galleys went in. I thought, if I don't do this now, I can't imagine there's going to be a time when I'll really have the luxury to do it later. So after two years of graduate school, three years of law school, and writing the book, I just wanted a little break before I started at the law firm. We'll cut you some slack. January. That's okay. Young people especially are in such a hurry. You see this with, you know, undergraduate students from top schools especially, where they're, you know, they work like crazy to get into a Dartmouth in the first place. And they're just in such a hurry, in such a hurry. And often I've talked to um, a bunch of other faculty members in different places, and they're almost uniformly consistent in their advice, which is to say, don't be in such a hurry. Uh, you only gain 
by not slowing down. It doesn't mean you're slowing down. You're doing something else. You're having a different life experience. In mm -hmm. your case, a particular type. But it could be work. It could be all kinds of different things. Mm -hmm. So what was the next stage, the next job? Because I know you were in consulting. I know you ran a, a hospital. <laughs> I'm touching the tip of the iceberg. We're not going to get to everything, but I just want to kind of tell the story because I want to talk about your personal story in a moment in the context of this incredible experience in healthcare and understanding organizations. I went to work for a law firm. I went to work for the esteemed Hill and Barlow, which no longer exists, but it was a great law firm. One of the reasons I selected it especially was they would rotate the new associates through the different departments. And so while you learn the law in law school, it's different practicing law and really understanding how each of those specialties work. Mm -hmm. So I very much enjoyed rotating through the different departments and then figuring out what I'd like to do best. Someplace along the way, a judge found out that I'd been a nurse. And I got a call from her chambers asking me to represent as a guardian ad litem a little five-year-old girl who had been sexually abused by her father. So the girl, of course, had been taken from the father and had been put in foster care, and she wanted me to represent her in court. From there, I went on to represent probably 20 more children, and I loved the work. But that's not what a corporate law firm does. You know, of course, they're very committed to pro bono work, so this was all pro bono. But I realized the passion I had for that because it was a real mix of being able to not only be a voice for this little person who'd had their voice taken away, but I also, from my background, had the experience to know how to speak with the child's physician and the child's therapist, the child's social worker. So it was really a holistic approach to representing mm -hmm. this child rather than just the legal yeah. aspect of it. I was at the law firm for four years, and the next chapter is something that I talk about with my mentees, many of them from Tuck. Thank you again for the invitation every year for all these years. Um, I've met some phenomenal women, and we're still in touch. I was reading in the Boston Globe every day a story about a small pediatric hospital that had run afoul of Medicaid payments. It seemed as though it wasn't for self-enrichment. It just seemed as though whoever was doing the Medicaid processing there just didn't understand how it worked. In any event, the hospital was hit with you know, significant fines. It had significant community service that it needed to do. And I started wondering, do they have a lawyer? So I reached out to my network of lawyers and found a friend who knew someone on the board. In fact, they did not have an in-house lawyer. So to make a relatively long story short, I navigated a way through the board to meet with the president of the hospital and proposed to him that I be their first in-house general counsel mm -hmm. because they needed one. I said, you're probably spending X dollars on outside counsel. I don't even need to see your bills to know how much you're paying and you should have someone inside. And that's why I think you should hire me. Two months later, my office was across the hall from the president of the hospital. So it's about creating your own opportunities, not just waiting for that job description to come through, but finding opportunities where you see the problem and you know that you're the one to fix it. And then figuring out strategically how to approach getting to the decision maker. Yeah, that's a great story because it's about taking control of your career. I often talk about how people really craft a career. And I like the verb craft because, you know, it's kind of cobbled together, there's some creativity, and there's other things that are going on, uh, and there's some happenstance, but you're adding something to the crafting, which is almost a 
use the word strategic, if you will, a strategic crafting. Yes, you can't control everything. Things happen, opportunities come up, but you can put yourself into more of the driver's seat by being strategic and thinking about that. So I love that story. So you share that with young women mostly, or younger women mostly, yes. uh, you know, 20s and 30s, that talk to you about their careers. And what do they say in response? First of all, they say, yeah, that's a great story. It's amazing. But what else do they say? The response I hear the most is, I didn't think about designing my own opportunity. And in large part, I believe it's because they may not think that they have the power to. So I love to use the Alice Walker quote about power that people who give up their power think they don't have any. But these women do. I mean, we all do in different ways. And I want these women to remember it, that they're not just necessarily on the receiving end. They can be on the, to use your word, crafting end as well. And for me, it was the perfect trifecta, thinking about it was kids, it was medicine, and it was law. So the other message that I give to my mentees on this is it's not so much necessarily thinking about a specific company that you want to go to, but what are you good at doing and what do you like doing from a functional point of view and finding those opportunities because that's where you will be happy and that's where you will excel. Yeah. What are you good at? And then take control of that and look for places where, in fact, not only places where that's useful, but where you're going to be valued for that. Exactly. And where people are willing to pay, frankly. Not everybody's willing to pay. And now pay doesn't just mean cash. You could very well be doing this in a nonprofit where you're not getting cash, but you're getting responsibility and influence and a seat at the table or sometimes at the head of the table. And that's equal in my mind to, you know, mm-hmm. any financial thing, but it has to be valued. And the only way you know if it's being valued beyond people nodding their heads is that they're paying. That's kind of how I look at it. Again, mm-hmm. paying in this kind of broad way, not just cash because <laughs> right. not everything is compensated as a job. I think another way for quote unquote payment is to not only give you the big title, but to give you the authority. So what I talk to my mentees about as well is sometimes we'll be asked to take on more responsibility, maybe with extra pay, maybe not with extra pay, but with that needs to come authority and not just the extra work. So do you advise them or coach them on negotiating when these opportunities come up? Yes, I do. Because that's, as you know, a big issue, especially for women. And it's a stereotype, but backed by data, which is that women are not as strong of uh, or aggressive in negotiators as a man on average in a corporate setting. First of all, that's what data show you in a lot of studies. Is that really what your experience has been and why your mentees really benefit from this type of advice? That is what my experience has been. And we've probably read the same studies. There was a study by McKinsey not too long ago that showed that women who asked for promotions or raises were considered then to be pushy, aggressive, assertive, bossy, self-serving. I've been called all those names and more, (laughs) and I'm still standing. (laughs) But the data bears out, not only is it more difficult for them to do it, but sometimes then there's a backlash because you've done it as well. Yeah, let's stay with this thought a little bit. I'm trying to think about what it is you can do as a woman, as anyone, but we're talking about women in particular that have these deeper challenges because of culture and systemic changes and discrimination and other things like that. What can you do? Because if you do the things that I think you should do, which is stand up for yourself, speak up, demand in an appropriate way what you're worth, because people devalue you if you don't stand up for yourself. But then there's this backlash that sometimes could be severe, really severe, and completely affect your career in a particular track. How do you balance those? I mean, how do you navigate that? That to me is the real challenge. If you have someone who's willing to either has the personality and definitely the motivation to take on this challenge, 
but knows that there's a price to be paid and you just don't want to pay too high a price. Let me mention a personal experience and then I'll mention what I talked to my mentees about. When I was coming up through the consulting ranks, and I know we're going to get to the consulting business, I would typically be called in when I was working with one firm. I was not yet a partner. I would typically be called in to reset engagements that had gone off the rails a little bit. And I was getting a reputation for that in the firm. And so when something would go sideways a bit, they'd say, let's call Christine and let's bring Mm -hmm. her in. One partner said to me one day, you know, Christine, I don't think you have a strategic bone in your body. Now, I'm wanting to be a partner in a strategy firm. I go on to be a partner in one of the best strategy firms in the world at BCG. And he's telling me, I don't have a strategic bone in my body. In response, I could have just shriveled away and said, oh my gosh, I'll never make partner. Or maybe I should find a different career or a different firm. I used that as rocket fuel. And I thought, I'm going to prove you so wrong. And I made partner in three years as opposed to the why did he? Why did he say that? I don't know. I didn't ask him. And in the moment, it was probably good that I didn't have a broader (laughs) conversation with Mm -hmm. him because there may have been repercussions. I don't know. So that was my personal experience with it. In terms of what I talked to my mentees about, sometimes it's about the broader network. And it's okay if you have people who support you to get there. Sometimes we as women think we have to do it all on our own. We don't like to ask for help. But thinking about having a mentor or multiple mentors, identifying those gaps you want to fill, and then finding mentors who can help you fill them. So it could be men, it can be women, it could be one mentor, but usually more. That's one part. And also then having a sponsor, someone who is going to table bang for you in that room when raises are discussed, when high visibility projects are being staffed, when promotions are being discussed. You want someone in there because you will not be in the room. You want someone in there being your champion. And so engaging those people early on so that when that situation comes up for that higher salary, for that bigger title with more authority, for that promotion, you're not necessarily going it alone, but you've got this support underneath you, people who know your work well and can attest to your work, that I have found, and from my experience too, that has been extremely beneficial. There were conversations about my being promoted and I never knew about it because people were in there arguing for me and supporting me and advocating for me. Right. So this is a really important point. And it even came up in my conversation with Stephanie Mitchcofield just uh, the other week on the podcast when she talked about the power of sponsorship in a similar way to what you're talking about. It's one thing to be a mentor within a company. Of course, that's valuable. But then to actually go to the mat for someone, to be the one to say, you know what, Christine is the one you should be looking at. And it's going from kind of being a somewhat passive, or at least engaging one-on-one with the mentee, the person you're mentoring, but being passive in the system around you versus taking on the system. And if there's one thing we've learned in the last uh, six months, there are systemic sources of discrimination along the lines of race and gender that are gigantic. And any solution, uh, and we're talking about for managers or in any organization, any solution requires the system you just described, the sponsorship that you just described. So let me ask you this. Let's say someone comes to you and says, I get that, Christine. That makes perfect sense. I really want that. How do I find a sponsor? How do I get someone to really believe in me and go to the mat for me? 
One of the best ways I have found is to actually be on an assignment with them, whatever your industry is, some way to work with them so that they can see your work firsthand. There's also literature out there that shows, and I'll put it in the simplest terms, if you're a woman and you're waiting for someone to come and tap you on the shoulder and tell you you're doing a good job, you're going to wait a long time. So finding those people where you can work with them and even ask them, you know, maybe they're not your sponsor yet, but they're doing interesting work and you'd like to be a part of it so that someone sees you firsthand. That's one piece. The second part is when thinking about a sponsor, identifying those people who are influential, who are persuasive, and who are well-regarded in the firm because they're not necessarily formally in a leadership role, but they're people that are listened to when these kinds of conversations about raises or promotions come up. So being strategic about how you find a sponsor as well, that matters. Right. That's excellent advice. Sitting and waiting, and that's the theme that I'm getting from a couple of things that you said, right? Sitting and waiting is not the best uh, approach to fulfilling your potential or your aspirations. It's quite the opposite. Yeah, but it's risky. It feels risky. You know, I don't remember who the person was who said this, so I don't know who to give credit to, but I will also sometimes talk to my mentees, depending on what the conversation is about, what would you do if you weren't afraid? And then thinking about calculated risks. Now, if you're a single mom, if you have, you know, certain kinds of responsibilities, your risk tolerance for certain things you do at work may be lower and understandably so because you don't want to put your position or your job in jeopardy. But then calculated risks in terms of that's an interesting opportunity. I know I can do it. You know, now strategically, how do I get there? So really knowing your own risk tolerance and how far you feel you can push that envelope without jeopardizing you or those who depend on you. Yeah. So we all have a hand we're dealt. We deal part of those cards, but some of them are dealt to us, right? And that hand is not stable in the sense it's always the same for most people. There are cards that come and go. And sometimes you could figure out how to add a card or two. That's going to increase the odds for you. And that's important. I think that's important. That's great advice, actually, as I think about it. And that's something that I'm sure that a lot of people are benefiting from when you have those conversations yourself, but a lot of people are thinking about it. I'm always uh, surprised at how time kind of flies by on these podcasts, and I'm looking at my clock, and there's no way we can cover an entire career, Christine, and with all of the tangents that are just so interesting to get into. But I do want to ask you this. You have had a career in multiple areas, but healthcare has been the dominant stream or strand in so many ways that you've mentioned, from working in a pharmacy as a high school kid to regulatory and policy work to being an RN in ICU, to running a hospital, which we didn't even talk about very much, being a general counsel in uh, representing kids. It goes on and on. But you yourself have had to deal with, over the last couple of years, a very difficult medical problem. And I know you're okay for me to ask you about it, because not everybody would talk about this, but I know there's so much people can learn and benefit. Could you share a little bit about what happened to you? And then I want to know how that felt and what you did. My mother passed in late 2017. And she and I were very close. And so I was grieving deeply. And a couple months after her death, I just wasn't feeling quite right. And I thought, it's just this deep grief. One thing nurses do is we self-diagnose. <laughs> so, so I thought, you know, I'm just desperately sad and lonesome without her. But then I started having some other symptoms, which is uh, my right eye really started to hurt. 
And that went beyond anything I could think of from a diagnostic point of view. So after being misdiagnosed for over a year, I finally persuaded a doctor to give me an MRI. And what we found was that I had a brain tumor about the size of an egg sitting on top of and behind my right eye, which is why my eye hurt so much. The only option was not for radiation, but to have a craniotomy and cut a four-inch hole in my skull and take the tumor out, which is what happened in April of 2018. When you got the diagnosis, after a year of misdiagnosis, which by the way, I'm sure you know this better than I, it's not unusual to have misdiagnosis for complex things. Anyway, there's a lot of problems where that happens and the uncertainty is so difficult. So you finally knew, you definitely knew what it was and it was a bad thing. How did you react? How did you deal with that? I went into, I think, to be honest, a bit of project management mode. You know, the tumor's in, it's got to come out. So no self-wallowing, no like just tumor in, tumor out. Now, what do you need to do to get support? This goes back to women don't like to ask for help. I'm one of those women, but the neurosurgeon informed me that I would not be able to take care of myself for at least the first two weeks. So I, in advance of the surgery, activated my girlfriend Posse from around the country and put together a spreadsheet of who was coming when. Uh, a <laughs> spreadsheet. <laughs> a spreadsheet of who was coming when. <laughs> and arranged for their transportation. All they needed to do was show up and feed me and give me my medicine. And that was, I was sleeping 22 hours a day for the first two weeks. And my wonderful, irreplaceable brother was there, of course. When I was in the hospital, he would bring me mango smoothies every day, which was the highlight of the day. So, you know, it's just something that has to get taken care of. So let's get on with it was really how I looked at it. The good news was it was not malignant, but one couldn't be 100% sure of that until the tumor came out. So as these things go, I'm very, very fortunate. You found out that it was like as soon as they take it out, they examine it and they know when you're alert enough to understand anything. One of the things they told you is it's not malignant. Yeah, yeah. And I think they told my brother because there are things that they can do in the OR where they take a little slice and they can do mm. a quick test, and then they send the bigger specimen off for pathology. But usually there's a sort of initial and then the more thorough diagnosis. So I was, I was very, very fortunate. What did you learn about the healthcare system as a patient in a pretty dramatic and complicated issue that you had? One of the things I learned, but I knew also just from being an advocate for my elderly mother, is you have to be your own advocate. And during that year of misdiagnosis, I knew something wasn't right. Now, with all of my medical training, I just set out and found specialists to give me other tests. So I got to the eye specialist who missed it and a number of other specialists who just said, oh, you know, it'll go away. Or again, we didn't know it was a tumor at the time. And then I will say I admittedly really pushy when I got to the neurologist. Now, these were all set up on my own. Now, think about people who don't have the background I have. I think about one of my cousins back in Pennsylvania. Had this been him, he wouldn't have known how to navigate the system, how to activate the system to get in and go to all these different specialists when you have no case manager per se. I was my own patient case manager. So I get to the neurologist 
and he's testing me for something I knew I didn't have. And I just said to him, enough already. Here's what you need to do. You need to write an order for an MRI with and without contrast, and you need to put me in the tube because there's something wrong with my head. And he kind of pushed back a little bit, and I said, just do it. Just do it. And he did, and he called me the next day and said, oh, you know, you were right. You do have a brain tumor. So being your own advocate or certainly being Mm -hmm. an advocate for those that you love. Very big, Um, very big challenge in modern healthcare. Huge challenge, huge challenge. The other thing that I learned was to take some of the predictions and put a bit of a range on them. Here's the example. The neurosurgeon who was fabulous, amazing. I send him an email every year on the date of my tumor surgery. And I have two birthdays a year now, my regular birthday and the date that the tumor came out. (laughs) He said, you know, in six weeks, it'll be like a hockey stick. You know, you'll be back up. You'll be back on planes with all of your clients, all my consulting clients. No, six weeks later, I was still dropping my head on the dining room table trying to eat. So it took me a long time. And then once I learned, no, it's just going to take what it takes. And I'm just going to manage my own expectations. Time is on my side. I'm grateful. I'm fully recovered. But it took a long time. Yeah, this thing about expecting something and it doesn't happen, even though you're recovering, that could really take a psychological toll. Because you expect it. You have the six weeks, you're fine. And that wasn't the case, even though you were getting better. It was very slow. It was incremental. I couldn't read for three or four months because I couldn't retain. I couldn't comprehend. But, you know, that's all gone. But I needed to give myself permission to just be patient that I knew time was on my side, that it would just take whatever it took. There's nothing I could do to push it. Yes, I was doing my cognition exercises and all of that every day which because I wanted to keep my brain engaged, but getting those synapses all back together was going to take time. And nerves take a long time to heal. So it would just be what it was. And so when has uh, full recovery happened? When did that happen? Do you think? It happened, I mean, full, full, full recovery. Like feeling as good as you ever felt before, like no symptoms, no, no anything. Around two years. Yeah. Which is not that long ago, actually. Which is not that long ago. But I was very functional. You know, after the first few months, I was functional. And so if you talked to me, you wouldn't be able to tell. I came and taught in your class less than one year after the surgery. That's right. And was fine. So, you know, highly functional. My brain would get tired then. But again, it's all good. And I'm very, very fortunate. It's quite a story. And you were really well placed to not only navigate and understand and manage, but to highlight some of the lessons that others would not necessarily pick up on or appreciate how important they are. As I said, the time flies by and we're going to leave a few things on the cutting room table for some other opportunity. But I do want to wrap up by asking you the question I like to end the conversations with. And it's about advice. And I suppose you've already given a dozen great pieces of advice, but this is advice to yourself. If you could magically go back in time to when you were 21 years old, So I don't know, when you were 21, were you in the nursing program or already working? Uh, I was an ICU nurse. I was an ICU nurse at 21. If you can go back to when you were 21 years old, so very young, starting your career, and you could kind of lean over yourself today, lean over to that person magically, the 21-year-old Christine, and say, there's one thing you want to know, there's one thing you want to understand, there's one thing you should think about, about life, about the world, about careers, about business, about anything. What would be that advice to yourself? Be aware of obstacles put in your way and design solutions to get around them, including systemic obstacles. And then there are personal obstacles we put in our way, just being alert to those and staying really curious 
you know how good you are. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. I love that advice. Curiosity is kind of the central theme that I've tried to follow on my own life. That's even why I started this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I can assure you it doesn't make any money. It just loses money. But it's one of the most <laughs> fun things I've ever done uh, in my career because I get to talk to interesting people like you and indulge my curiosity and share with our listeners all kinds of insights and stories. And you really helped do that today, Christine. So, Christine, thanks so much for being on the SITCAP. Thank you. My great pleasure. And I look forward to seeing you in the classroom in the spring. Thank you for listening to the SITCAST. I am really excited to be bringing you season two and very appreciative that you've chosen to listen to this episode. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the series so you'll never miss a single new episode. I welcome all feedback and would love to hear from you. If you have any questions, suggestions for guests, or any suggestions at all, please contact me via our website, www.thesitcast.com, or you can email me directly at sidfinkelstein at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, I hope you'll tune into another one of our episodes. And please give us a five-star review and share with others who you think would enjoy and benefit from the show as well. The Sidcast is produced by the podcast Laundry Company. See you next time.